Hey, this is Yaz, host of Most Innovative Companies. Here's a special custom mini-series from Fastco Works and SAP. Enjoy. Welcome to Growth Agents, a special mini-series in partnership with SAP. I'm Matt Robertson with Fastco and Inc. Studios. Our guest today is Matt Scarupa, CFO of Duolingo. Let's just jump in. Matt, you know, could you give us kind of like the elevator pitch for Duolingo for those who might not be familiar with it? If you meet somebody at a party, what would you say? What, what happens here? Duolingo is the world's largest language learning app. Uh, we have about 75 million monthly active users, over 20 million daily active users, and we teach over 30 languages on the app. And we're the category defining uh, way you would learn a language on your phone. While we're doing all that, we've created a beloved brand, a brand that uh, is quirky and fun and engaging. We've created a product that keeps you coming back day after day, which is the core way or the key way to learn a language. And so we think of ourselves as um, doing something uh, that is really good for the world and trying to do it in an excellent way. Could you expand a little bit on like what your overall kind of mission is here, what this company is trying to achieve and, and sort of how you are, are able to execute that? Our mission's uh, a really powerful one. It's actually one that drew me to Duolingo and I think a lot of folks to Duolingo. The mission is to create the best education in the world and make it universally available. So we want to make not just language, but education more broadly, more accessible across uh, income spectrums and globally. One of the things we're proudest of is the fact that recently um, displaced people around the world use Duolingo to learn a language and some of the richest people in the world. So our mission is really broad and encompassing and, and one that we're uh, very proud of. Could you tell me a little bit more about kind of this, this idea of this global footprint, I guess, and, and yeah, feel free to expand on this, like, I guess, multi-tier level of people that you're able to reach. Yeah, so our app is used around the world. You know, almost every country in the world has users of Duolingo. And part of the reason for that is because we're a freemium subscription product. So that means that you can use our app for free forever. And so a lot of folks around the world, whether you have money to spend on a subscription or to learn a language at a school or, you know, wherever you want to learn a language, you don't have to pay us. You can just use our app for free forever. Now, a lot of folks do end up paying us, but um, that's why we've been able to grow to such a global reach with so many users around the world, is that it's a free, fun, and effective learning product that is also free. There's no paywall to it. So that leads to folks in refugee camps. Um, we have users who are trying to learn a language there. Uh, when the war in Europe started um, in 2022, folks use language to greet new refugees, etc. And we have really famous people uh, all the time telling us that they're using Duolingo uh, to learn a language. So it really can appeal across the income spectrum and provide just a great, fun way to learn a language. How do you sustain this, this freemium model? So when you first download the app and you start using it, you don't have to pay us anything. What happens is it's very uh, much like a game. So there's uh, an element of life to it. So if you get questions right or wrong, if you get them wrong, you give up a heart and you only have five hearts per lesson. Now, if you run out of hearts, you can still use the app, you just can't progress uh, down your learning journey. So a lot of folks decide that they want the convenience of being able to go at their own pace as fast as they want, no matter what mistakes they make. Um, and we also show folks who don't pay us ads, and some people don't want the ads. Those are the two main reasons people subscribe. And so they subscribe and they pay us a, a subscription fee, usually an annual fee. And that uh, revenue is what enables us to grow and invest in our business so that we can 
create new fun and effective features and continue that cycle of, of attracting new users and then converting some of them to paid subscribers. Let's go into the kind of the, a little bit more personal side. You want to share kind of what drew you into this type of work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've always been uh, attracted to math and systems type things. That's why uh, I was an undergrad in chemical engineering of all things, which was very math and systems heavy. And so there was a compulsion to understand the world and understand it through math when I was a kid. Uh, after college, I went to Bain and Company, which was a defining career moment for me because that's a business strategy consultancy firm. And it really taught me how to think about businesses, how do they work, and just quite frankly taught me how to think a bit clearer than I had ever thought before. Uh, then I went to KKR, which is a private equity firm. They think about capital allocation, like how you decide where to invest or not uh, in a distinctive way, and I picked up some of that. And then I went to Goldman Sachs, which is all about option value and risk and how you put those things together to make money. From all of those experiences, now looking back, I can tell you that that came from this compulsion to kind of understand the world and do it through a quantitative and mathematical way. And as I was thinking about careers, that meant that a CFO role was going to be pretty interesting and pretty aligned with those interests and compulsions. So that's how I got into the CFO game. What was, I guess, the, the launching point from... I guess if, you, if you're at Goldman Sachs or where we were before yeah. that made you get involved with coming to Duolingo. It's pure luck, to be honest. I'd love to tell you this grand strategy uh, and plan I had, but like I think a lot of things in life, it came down to a very lucky stroke. So I had wanted to go into a business after business school. So for about 10 years, I've been looking for a business uh, that I wanted to go be you know, a part of. I'd never found anything that just grabbed me. There was no business that I was like, I have to be a part of that. And um, I was at Goldman Sachs, and a friend of mine, whose name is Layla Sturdy, she now runs Capital G, the growth investing arm of Google. She called me and said that she was on the board of a really interesting company called Duolingo that was looking for a CFO. Uh, would I want to talk to the team? And I was like, you know, absolutely, Layla. I trust you. I love your judgment. Uh, you and I kind of see the world the same way. I'd love to, to meet the team. So I came to Pittsburgh, met Luis, our co-founder and CEO, met Severin, and was blown away. I'd never seen a combination like Duolingo. It was truly mission-driven organization. The mission was one that I'd be proud to tell my mom where I worked. She would both know what it was and be proud of me as well. The business itself had created an amazing product, it had a beloved brand, and it had so much potential. It was just incredible. So I had never seen anything like it. Uh, it was the one that grabbed me, and I was lucky enough that they decided that I was a good fit as well. But that was uh, pretty fortuitous and, and not the result of some brand design. Would you like to share any more about how kind of your background and your passion for mathematics has had an influence on what you do here? The way that my background comes into work at Duolingo, it has enabled me to be a bit more strategic as a CFO versus a finance-oriented CFO. And what I mean by that is the number one job of any CFO, including me, is you know manage the cash. That's like the core business uh, of being a CFO. Then you have to allocate capital. But there's an element of just, how do you think strategically about what the business should be, what it could be, and where it could go? And I think because I started life, professional life as a strategy consultant, and then layered on the capital allocation and finance side, it's given me a chance to um, really start usually most conversations, most processes, most things I do around here from that strategic lens, not necessarily from the finance lens. And so what does being a strategic CFO mean to me when I'm talking to you about it? It's 
all the normal things people say. You have to be a great business partner to the other executives, and you have to start with kind of the big picture in mind. But to me, it's more about having a good strategy is linking unlimited aspirations, really infinite aspirations that a company like Duolingo, they can think of any number of things to do, and they do. So there's really infinite things they want to go do, but we have limited resources. Every company has limited resources. And so when you link those two things together with a plan, that's really where a strategic CFO can, can operate really effectively. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges and complexities for you as a CFO? I think every CFO faces the core challenge of transforming the future and all its uncertainties and risks back into action that you have to take today. I guess the core, that's the central contradiction of being a CFO, is you have to make decisions right now, you have to take action right now, but you have to base those decisions as best you can on an unforeseen, unknowable future. And, you know, that's part of life and that's part of any company, but as a CFO, that's, that's tough. That's the tough part. That's where the challenges and complexities come in. So how are you able to think about the external world and its challenges uh, and forecast how that's going to evolve? And then even internally, how are the things you're investing in today, how long are they going to take to come to fruition? How big are they going to be when they do come to fruition? That is the core challenge and complexity of being in this role. That's why it's so exciting and so fun to do it at a place like Duolingo. Are there any successes that you can share of having been a part of that, that you're proud of? You know, as a CFO, most of the successes uh, that I see most, most days, day in and day out, are really small and pretty uh, detail-oriented. So, for example, with my team, you know, watching my team come to a really nice, thoughtful, strategic decision on a PO system. They're not terribly exciting to talk about, but they add up. You know, you got to do that every day and you, you get to a good spot. I think the most public thing that we succeeded at that I'm really proud of is the IPO. So when I joined Duolingo in February of 2020, it was right before the pandemic started, and the company wanted to go public in general in a couple years. And over the course of the next 18 months, working from home during a global pandemic, building a team, and getting the entire company ready to go face the public markets, we were able to do that and really successfully execute on a, a nice public offering in July of 2021. And the entire company was able to rally around that goal, get excited about it and execute on it, and then celebrate the success of it. I think that was the biggest public-facing goal that we've had while I've been here uh, in the finance and accounting organization. And I'm, I'm really proud of how it went. Part of what's cool about this series is we're talking to CFOs. We're traditionally talking to CEOs and founders and those types of people. So I'd be curious, you know, anything you could share from your unique perspective doing what you do that might surprise our, our viewers and listeners? When we were going public, you know, I talked to a lot of CFOs, CEOs, members of the boards of directors who had taken companies public before and ask for their advice. What would you do differently? What would you do the same? What are your big learnings? And they gave me a lot of really great advice. They recommended books, they did their thing. And they didn't have one piece of advice that I would love to give to other folks from the CFO seat who are even contemplating you know, a potential public offering, which is that type of event is such a big goal. It can be such a company unifying goal. You can get the entire company involved in it. Sometimes folks don't. A lot of the folks that gave me advice said, keep the group small who's working on this. 
Um, we chose to go a different path. We chose to make it a big company event pretty early, even when it was risky to tell everyone because it might not have worked out. We took that risk and we said, we're going to bring in the entire company to this process. The benefit that I didn't know at the time that I now like to talk about is that goal is so exciting for so many people and it's so clarifying that the management team can really use it to drive alignment on big topics throughout the organization in a way that's otherwise hard to do in the day-to-day. So for example, if you wanted to talk about why you're even doing what you're doing, where you're doing what you're doing, what your market is, why you think you're going to win, why are you as a company distinctive and going to you know, win the market, how are you going to do that, and what things are we willing to trade off? You have a forum of a bunch of people and you have all of their attention, and if you wrap that all together in the achievement of that big, huge goal that they're very excited about that's really aspirational, you can get a lot of alignment where you might otherwise take years or may never get that alignment um, by linking those things together. What's it like you know, leading a company like this that's, that's clearly very innovative and pushing boundaries and also really effective, I think, at, at doing good? It's a lot of fun. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just how much fun, I mean, everyone at the company, but me and the leadership team have. Like, we are trying to solve problems that have real meaning to a lot of us uh, and hopefully to the world. So that just gives you a bit of energy that might not otherwise be present when you come to work. And so when you're in that situation, some of the challenges, you know, there's days where you're like, oh, this is tough. But having that bedrock of like, oh, you know, if we actually figure this out in a way that nobody else has figured out, more people around the world are going to be able to learn something for free that they didn't know before is a, is a nice motivating factor. It goes back to the definition of strategy that I mentioned, which is linking your unlimited aspirations with your finite resources. At Duolingo, we, have, we really do have big aspirations, and we have a, a, an engineering team, which is the, most, uh, the majority of our investment is in R&D. So it's a bunch of engineers, product managers, and designers who make the product better every day. The bottom-up idea generation is enormous, and that's super fun, and it's exciting, and it's honestly surprising in a lot of ways. I mean, there are ideas that come up that I think to myself, huh, you know, I don't know about that idea, and then it becomes this enormous thing, which is why I'm the CFO and not running product. But when you're in that context, the problem is not creating ideas, like how are we going to win, what are we going to go do? Uh, The interesting thing then is how do you prioritize and invest where do, you, where do you put the, the chips on the table? And I think Duolingo has uh, found just a, a really, I don't know if it's unique, but they execute in a way that's special, which is you have that bottoms-up idea or idea generation, and then kind of a collective understanding that we invest behind things that are going really well, and we define really well through a very rigorous A-B testing and experiment framework. So it's not really up to me or... even Luis to some extent or others to say, oh, this is going well. We are running experiments where we're putting something out into the world and it's a small size, seeing what happens and then investing behind things that are doing doing great. And so having that clarity around this is what the definition of something doing well is and then having the kind of general framework that we put money behind things that are working and we don't try to fix everything that's not working has been a really interesting way to energize the company around the growth that we we think we'll hopefully achieve for a long period of time. Is there anything you could share that people typically get wrong or, or misunderstand about what the role is of a CFO? 
The things I think most people get wrong, it happened to me in the hall today. Someone was surprised I was in a meeting and I suggested that we spend more money on something. And they said, oh, I was shocked that you suggested we spend more money, you're the CFO. I think the misperception uh, is that CFOs don't want to spend money. I don't know a single CFO that thinks that way. If you bring me an idea that will have a nice benefit relative to its cost and is scalable, meaning I can kind of keep spending money against it over time, I will go get you all of the money I can hoard up and give it to you because that's great. That's what we're in the business of doing. It's creating a high return on our investment at scale. The perception comes when CFOs are approached with the dreaded, the benefits are hard to uh, comprehend here, but I want to spend money. You know, that's where I think we get that misperception maybe gets ingrained in folks is because that's where we're skeptical and we push back. But no, if there is an investment idea with a high ROI that's scalable, I will go run around the world gathering money to go put behind that. Yeah, so as a CFO, how do you balance keeping that lid on cost versus you know funding growth strategies that you're excited about? At Duolingo, um, we have a great way to allocate resources to the winners of our experiments, right? Our experiments are what determine where we invest our resources. That is a non-emotional, apolitical type way to allocate capital. Because it's not my opinion versus your opinion, it's we have data on what's working and what's not, and so we get to make those choices. Now there's always choices on the margin where maybe the data is a little bit less clear, or you can't get all the data you want. Um, but it's just a really refreshing way to not have to engage in, well, I like this thing or I don't. We're allocating money to it or not. What did the experiment show? When it comes to costs, Duolingo has always had this culture, and it really is a cultural element of not going nuts. Now, that might sound colloquial, but like that's what Luis said on an earnings call was, we've never gone nuts on hiring. And it's because that's the language internally that's used. That's the cultural zeitgeist is just don't go nuts. Like, you don't need to hire 100 more people. We want to bet on technology. You don't need to have 10 offices around the world. We have a couple. And it came from early on in the company's life, they weren't making any money. They weren't monetizing their users. It was just free. Now we're a freemium product where you can use the product for free and eventually pay us for a subscription. When it first started and for the first several years, five, six years, there was no and pay us a subscription. And so the company was founded on this ethos of we're not bringing in money from users, so let's not spend like crazy. That has enabled us now that we are making you know, a good amount of revenue to still maintain that culture of don't go nuts. Could you share an example of some of the growing pains you've kind of been able to maybe help Duolingo overcome? So the business grows really well organically. People like it and they tell their friends and family about it. Or they see it in a cultural moment on social media or somewhere and they learn about it that way and they come to it naturally. We don't have to pay a lot of money to get people to come experience us. It's a very organic product. Because we don't have to pay people to come engage with our product, we're able then to invest uh, a lot more money in engineers, product managers, designers to then make the product better, more fun, more engaging, which then hopefully makes people tell their friends about it and makes us uh, able to become a more beloved brand, quirky, irreverent brand that draws, again, more people, and you have a virtuous cycle where the product gets better, more people come, you get more money from those folks who do come, you can invest it back in the product, it gets better, and you just kind of repeat the cycle. That's kind of our core growth model and how we've grown historically. That enables someone who's in the CFO seat to be a growth agent 
by simply amplifying the things that are working and leading to more of that growth over time, more of that cycle. So the way I do that is that uh, I try to, um, again, just look to the data as the CFO, where we are running a ton of experiments every quarter. We run hundreds of these tests where we change little things in the app to see what they do. Again, I have to sometimes check my disbelief on some of the things and see if they're gonna uh, work or not and just re rely on the data. Part of the role as a CFO is to amplify the things in our virtuous cycle that lead to growth and get out of the way a lot so that you can just let these things work because it's such a nice and powerful model by itself. So some of those examples are, um, we recently um, became a lot more profitable than we've been in the past. And we did that because we can, you know, our business model never spent all that much money. Uh, we had a very prudent founding team and management team that didn't go crazy on spending and hiring and these type of things. And so the business could just naturally inflect up as we grew. But the other thing that I think I was able to help the company see is that there's a lot of reward in the marketplace from investors for becoming more profitable more rapidly. And so we, this year, have shown we've uh, become much more profitable. Now, how does that tie back to growth? Well, the answer is, internally, we talk about controlling our own destiny. We have a great model that already works. It's a flywheel. It's what I described before. And so what you want is you want to get rewarded for that and get money to invest in that flywheel. So my job is to make sure that we are uh, seeing that clearly, that like a nice growth with nice profitability will be rewarded with investor dollars, and then invest those dollars behind that nice flywheel that we already have. That's my key job, is matching those two things together over time. And then, again, getting out of the way, because the business runs so well, the engineers and designers and product managers are amazing. Just don't mess that up, because it's, it's working so well. It must be nice to have this organic thing happening. I, my wife sent me a, like an article. It seemed almost like a case study about your social media and how you guys, you're not selling, you're just kind of there, and people kind of poke around, and then they're onboarded quickly you're not ramming it down people's throats. That's exactly right, yeah. We call it social-first uh, marketing, which is when we're creating marketing events and campaigns, the lens that we start with is how is this going to look to folks who don't know our brand on social media or in the social context. And that allows us to have this really truly beloved owl. Everyone loves the owl, um, but it's a bit irreverent. It's a bit quirky. It, it will check up on you. Like, did you do your lesson? It will ask you that. But that leads to a reach that maybe uh, other brands um, haven't been able to achieve. SNL has used Duolingo 4 a couple times, or we were most recently in the Barbie movie. And these type of things happen because we sit in this unique position in the world as this fun but quirky and somewhat irreverent owl that exists. And it gets sent around. You know, people talk about it. The other point you just made is that we don't actually ever on our social media, you'll never see a buy now button. That's not how we engage with it. We're showing you fun content that we think you might want to show other people. And then you'll use our product and you'll probably use it for free for a while. And then maybe you'll subscribe, maybe you won't. But it's not a um, in your face kind of buy now kind of uh, sales process. And if I'm always a, a non-paying user, are, are there ads or anything like that? Or is that, is that how you... Yeah, so our free users uh, see ads and they um, lose hearts. If you're a paying subscriber, you see no ads. You get unlimited hearts. 
and some other benefits as well. I'm curious now. I want to I want to sign up, and I'm wondering if it would be better use of my time to go back and relearn some of the Spanish I've lost, or just start at the, at the starting line on a new language. I don't know what most of your users do. I'd be well, curious. the great news for you personally is you don't have to make that choice. You can toggle between languages at your leisure. So a lot of folks uh, are learning more than one language at a time. Uh, Luis, our, our founder and CEO, is learning at least three right now, plus math. So, and he's a PhD in math. So you can always go back and start over and toggle over if you, uh, if you want. I'd love to hear from your side kind of what goals there are. I know you've kind of covered a bit. Any other goals for the future of the company over the next five years and beyond where you guys are headed? We orient to the long term in terms of our mission. So our mission is to make the best education in the world, make it universally available. And we think that there's always going to be a pretty deep connection around the world uh, with people getting meaning from learning new things. That's a core belief we have, and we think it's going to persist. So our job then is, over the next you know, three to five years, is to figure out how to help people get more meaning out of their learning. We do that by making our product better. The kind of vision in the nearer term, like the three to five year term, is Luis has wanted for a very long time to make our app teach as well as a human tutor, a one-on-one tutor. We now have technology available with generative AI and some other technological advancements that put that within spitting distance. Like you're, you're able to see a clearer path now to getting to that, what was like a longer term aspiration, potentially sooner. So over the next three to five years, we're really excited to see how that develops. It could be a really nice growth vector for us, but it can also accelerate us on our path, uh, on our mission to achieving that. In your view, in your experience, and maybe in your own philosophy towards it, how is the role of the CFO changing in today's C-suites? I think the role of the CFO has been changing for a while, and it's potentially just accelerating now towards this idea that the CFO has to be a much more strategic and business-oriented executive than potentially in the past they were. If the role of the CEO is always to make sure you have enough cash and you're managing your cash well and then allocating resources, that's not going to change. What's changed is, is, is that the pace of the market evolution, the pace of the technological evolution has changed so much that the other core function of the CFO, which is projecting things into the future, figuring out what to do about them today, is much harder for just a purely financially oriented person. You're going to have to take a much broader and much more strategic view of what's going on in the world and in your business and how those two things map together to make the decisions you need to make as your core job. So I think that's accelerating. Um, and I don't see any reason why it would slow down in the next couple of years. That's all for our discussion on Growth Agents. This custom episode is produced by Fastco and Inc. Studios in partnership with SAP. I'm Matt Robertson. Our producer is Avery Miles and our editor is Nicholas Torres. 